You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, thanks for being here on this Sunday morning, and um, it's the last of this four-part series on the gospel and literature. And what I've tried to do in this series is to look at some very significant pieces of literature and how the authors present character development and plot that teach basic themes to our faith, fundamental ideas about what does it mean to live according to the gospel. And, uh, you know, what have we've looked at so far, you know, I th- in my opinion, have been tremendous accomplishments by the human mind and heart, but mainly under the inspiration of great sort of religious impulses. Uh, even though we started off with a pre-Christian writer, Oedipus Rex, by uh, Sophocles, nonetheless, it has great truths, I think, that can be taught us. And today we're going to be looking at two different authors that were overtly Christian, very much so, in their own personal lives and especially in their literary accomplishments. And the first one here is by uh, Victor Hugo, the great French writer, who wrote this magnificent novel called Les Miserables. And because of the play and the movie influences, we all know that as Les Mis. Uh, quite honestly, I've been fortunate to see it a couple of times. It was here a couple of years ago, and I didn't get to see it. But I've had, because of, you know, uh, come in teaching at uh, Samford, I've been able to spend a number of semesters in London, and I've seen it there on two different occasions. In fact, I'm going to show a clip in just a minute of uh, the production that was at the Queen's Theatre. Uh, very old theatre, very cramped. I remember how cramped I was for about three and a half hours. Well, be that as it may, it, it is an unbelievable accomplishment, okay, and full confession. I've not read all of this. Uh, you may want to get up and leave then thinking, I don't know what I'm talking about. It is something, though, I, I've studied the main points, and I've, I've used chapters in classes, and, and recently in a publication, I used something out of this book. And its storyline is very complicated. I mean, it covers... You know, they estimate 655,000 words. Uh, it's in five different books uh, with all kinds of parts in it, 365 chapters on just parenthetically. I've decided uh, I'm going to start reading a chapter a day, and in one year I can finally say I've read all of Les Mis. Uh, but it, it is a story that is well known, uh, primarily because of the theater productions and several very, very good movie productions of Les Mis. Uh, Victor Hugo writes it for specific purposes. Um, let me give you a little overview of the, of, the, of the plot itself, and then I'm going to go back to some of these purposes that Hugo gives for the writing of the book. You know, it's about some very significant figures, kind of unforgettable figures, as, if you know anything about it. Jean Valjean, who was this prisoner for 19 years, he gets out, he cannot go anywhere, he's angry, he's befriended by Bishop Mural, whom I'll talk quite a bit about a little bit later. Uh, and uh, you know, he gets caught skeet, stealing, the bishop forgives him of this, he goes on, he has a transformation in his life due to the influence of the bishop. Parallel to this is the story of uh, Fantine and uh, Cassette, her daughter. Uh, she is a, a common woman and is taken advantage of and basically seduced and raped by a man who abandons her. She has this child in you know, absolute poverty named Cosette, and 
you know, she has to loan that child out to this very despicable uh, husband and wife family, and she resorts to prostitution in order to, you know, have food and try to support her daughter, and she can't do it. She gets arrested, and by a man named Javert, a very notorious name in the history of literature, Javert, uh, he was a prison guard at the prison of Bonnet that where Jean Valjean was and knew him to be this hardened convict and you know uh, regretted him ever being released and by this time though Jean Valjean had gone through this transformation and become a respectable hardworking wealthy factory owner now just prior to that uh, 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 Fontaine had worked in that factory and because of certain things that happened there she got released she was on the street a man started to grope her she hits the man Javert this very myopic obsessive compulsive policeman has her arrested and Jean Valjean who had changed his name to Monsieur Madeleine had become mayor of that town that's how far he had gone from prison hatred hard brittle you know, despicable and almost always now to this upstanding, righteous you know, man, mayor of the town. And he sees this happen and he re realizes that she had worked in his factory and she is able to get her released much to the protestations of Javert. Well, that starts a long series of relationship between Jean Valjean and Fontaine and Cassette her daughter. He basically adopts them. In particular, he does adopt Cosette eventually. Well, Fontaine is so ill, she dies in a hospital in this throne, and, and, and where Victor Hugo, how he describes it, it just makes you cringe. I mean, here she was, a woman taken advantage of, living in poverty, given over to prostitution just to eat, and she's just thrown into a, a mass grave of commoners. Well, this is during the 1830s. And there was a tremendous amount of revolt and protest against King Louis Philippe. And in 1832, there was actually a breakout uh, in Paris against the king trying to overthrow him, the king's rule and dominance. It was during this time that Cosette, the adopted daughter now to Bonjean, was a grown woman, and she falls in love with one of these men who's part of this rebellion named Marius, M-A-R-I-U-S. And Marius is a little suspicious of Jean Valjean and thinks he's probably a, a, you know, not truthful, uh, that he's actually hiding something. And the plot gets even thicker than this. And eventually, you know, Javert comes in on the scene. He is this, this, this uh, policeman that has been dogging uh, Jean Valjean for all these years, trying to get him you know, entrapped in some way so that he can put him back in prison. He would never accept the idea that Jean Valjean was an innocent man. And it gets, you know, all kinds of sort of intricacies in the plot. And then finally at the end, the revolt breaks out there in the barricades and uh, Jovert is captured. He's for the king, for the royal uh, guard there. And uh, Jean Valjean is given the orders to execute him. And so now he can play the policeman. Now he can play the judge. But what Jean Valjean does is similar to what the bishop had done to him earlier. He takes him off to the side and shoots the gun up in the air and tells him that he forgives him and lets him go. This throws Jean Val I mean, Javert into an existential crisis of, you know, 
desperate magnitude. He doesn't know what to do. All his life, he has been wanting an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's wanting revenge. He's wanting law and order. He's wanting control. And now this man, whom he wanted to execute, actually, has forgiven him. And it throws him in such conflict, inner conflict. He doesn't know what to do. He cannot live with the fact that he has been forgiven. He cannot live with it. And so he throws himself in the river and drowns himself. Well, the battle at the barricades continued to go on, and uh, Jean Valjean uh, is able to rescue uh, Marius, Marius, who uh, had been wounded in this battle, and carries him back, and he is reunited with Cosseret. They had become lovers, and they were now married, and as soon as he reunites them, uh, he dies, and that's the end of the of the novel. Like I said, it's 650,000 words long, and this could go on for a long, long time. But what I want to do is to mainly look at why I think, in my humble opinion, Victor Hugo, a genius, you know, he writes, you know, remember The Hunchback of Notre Dame as well, uh, writes this novel in which, you know, he, he, he addresses almost everything under the sun. It's incredible. About one-fourth of the novel are digressions ranging from some philosophical musings to religious orders. He has you know, almost close to 90 pages just on the sewer system in Paris. I'm not sure why he digresses on all these, but he has something to say. But it, as you know, any great genius, and I would consider him a genius, he is able to sort of work all that in to develop the story, this plot of what happens to people when they are touched by the gospel. What happens to them? This is his preface. So long as there shall exist by reason of law and custom a social condemnation which in the face of civilization artificially creates hells on earth and complicates a destiny that is divine with human fatality, so long as there are problems of the age, the degradation of man by poverty, the ruin of women by starvation, and the dwarfing of childhood by physical and spiritual night are not solved, so long as in certain regions social asphyxia shall be possible. In other words, from yet a more extended point of view, so long as ignorance and misery remain on earth, books like this cannot be useless. And I would agree with it. And I think one of the profound aspects of what Les Mis tries to do is that the way we address those three problems, you know, poverty, the abuse of women, the dwarfing of children, because of the greed, the misery, the hate, the malice of people, the proper solution, the only solution that can actually change the core of those problems is the gospel. Is the gospel. Okay, uh, let me see. Hold on one second. Near the end of the book, uh, near the end of the book, if I can find it, I had it marked and then I lost it. He, uh, you know, as Victor Hugo would do, would interject a commentary within the development of the plot and explains why he writes this book. Brief little paragraph. The book which the reader now has before his eyes is, from one end to the other in its whole and in its details, whatever may be the intermissions the exceptions or the defaults, the march from evil to good, from injustice to justice, 
from the false to the true, from night to day, from appetite to conscience, from rottenness to life, from brutality to duty, from hell to heaven, from nothingness to God. Starting point, matter. Goal, soul. Hydra at the beginning, angel at the end. How do we, as people with hard hearts, with the tendency to not only misunderstand but misuse circumstances and people, we who will, will accept you know, explanations based out of vengeance and hate to justify our own actions, we who get caught up in these kind of movements in which you know, people are, are harmed and, and we think we're doing the right thing all along, how can we move from nothingness to God, from hydra, this beast, to an angel at the end? What, what, what can transform us into becoming an angel? And that's why he writes this book. It is one of the great testimonies of the power of the gospel to change people. All right, now let me back up a little bit more about this. I, I learned long ago that on PowerPoint, don't put a lot of text. People get lost, kind of glassy eye. So I found these interesting pictures. You, if you've seen the movie Les Mis, uh, this, in my opinion, is one of the great scenes in cinematographic history when Anna Hathaway sings that wonderful song. And here she is dying. Uh, uh, you know, she had been abused and neglected. And Jean Valjean was able to hopefully show her some sort of care and concern and adopts her daughter. But this is a wonderful depiction of Jean Valjean himself at the beginning and then at the end, a real transformation. You can see in this drawing here the profound kind of hatred that's in him, his, uh, you know, the rock hardness of his face, you know, his fretted brow of, of sort of hate and vengeance, and his, his sort of, you know, his face there is all wrinkled up with a snarl, and he wants to get back at the injustices that he's experienced. And, you know, who doesn't feel this way? I mean, we've all been wronged by something, some way or another in our lives, and we think, how, we can, how can we get back? And he tries this life of, of hatred and bitterness and anger. He's just eaten up with it. And then something happens to him, and he's transformed, and he becomes this, this, this godly, stately, caring, helping, compassionate man that goes out as a way to help all kinds of people. And there are many, many incidences in the novel where Victor Hugo shows him doing sort of Christ-like Good Samaritan deeds with no sort of you know, chance of being recompensed for them. Why? What, what happens to a man? What happens to a soul, to a heart that moves from hatred to love, nothingness to God? And here's the epitome of hardness, of, of obsession, of... Uh, granite-like resolution and, uh, and desire to get even, to, to wreck the law upon people regardless of whether it's the right thing to do, and that's Javert. And he indeed is a tragic figure in not only the book, but the novels. I mean, the great plays depict him as this person you know, who, who is not happy with who he is, who is not content, who is not satisfied in this kind of relentless pursuit to get even with Jean Valjean. You know, his, his myopic you know, desire to have the law to rule at all cost drives him into this kind of maniac. And he, he's driven to suicide at the end because, you know, his heart is, is just too hard. It's, it's, too, it's too coarse uh, to be able to accept that he can be forgiven for what he does. And I have to admit, I've got a little time to digress on this. I, this has always been sort of a baffling part, I think, 
of the novel. I mean, so many things are overcome by the power of, of the gospel in this great novel of love and devotion and kindness. So many things are overcome by that, but not him. We live in a world in which, you know, there are stumbling blocks. We live in a world in which evil has done such irreparable damage to certain things that it will never be solved, never be healed, never be reconciled in this world. Only possibly in another heaven and earth remade by God can these things actually be overcome. So maybe this is a great insight, even though if I were to vote, I would, I would vote for Javert to finally get converted at the end. But it is a realistic depiction. And here's that famous battle scene that I mentioned, uh, June 6th, 7th, and 1832, when it actually did happen. This was at the Queen's Theater uh, in London. But what I want to emphasize is this man. In, in terms of the great plot, uh, in t I mean, in terms of pages in the great plot, in terms of the amount of tension to the actions, he's a minor character. But I have argued in things I've done before, and I'm going to argue here with you, in some ways he is the pivotal character because it starts with him. He's a bishop. He himself had rather, uh, you know, uh, you know, unseemly you know, background, uh, and he had to have the gospel given to him and experience the transforming power of God's love, and indeed it does, and, and here he is, he's a bishop, and one night Jean Valjean knocks on his door, and he allows him to come in, and in the middle of the night Jean Valjean gets up and steals some silver forks and knives, I think it is, and, and then runs off, and he's captured. And they suspect that uh, he has stolen these things from the bishop's parsonage, and, and indeed he had, and they bring him back. And the bishop sees something. This is the point. He sees something. He sees this man's destiny right here. His whole eternity is standing there in front of him. And what does he do? Does he want the law, or does he want the gospel? And he chooses the gospel for a reason. And it's not just sort of a willy-nilly, sort of whimsical kind of, you know, I forgive you. There's destiny at stake in this. And they let him go, and Bishop Miro actually gives him two silver candlesticks, and Jean Valjean goes. And as he goes, he says to him, that is the bishop, you need to turn to God. You need to turn to God. It raises a, a perplexing question for us, doesn't it? What turns people to God? How do we act towards others in which we can hope that they too can see that Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, was buried and three days later raised from the dead as the hope of the world? What, what can we do that can convey a message that a man who died 2,000 years ago is the hope of the world because he's the son of God and the son of man? What can we do? Is it the law? Or is it compassionate forgiveness? Well, the bishop here knows it's the, it's the latter and not the former. And indeed, the whole book then moves from that point on. We wouldn't have had the rest of the book if Bishop Nero hadn't acted that way. He is the linchpin, I think, in the development of this great plot. And uh, I'm running out of time, but I want to read uh, one little part here that Victor Hugo says about the bishop. And this is the gospel in my opinion. There are men 
and we'll add women to this as well. He writes before uh, we're more inclusive. There are men who labor for the extraction of gold. He worked for the extraction of pity. The misery of the universe was his mine. Grief everywhere was only occasion for good always. Love one another, he declared. That to be complete, he desired nothing more. And it was his whole doctrine. One day this man, who counted himself a philosopher, the senator before mentioned, said to the bishop, See now what the world shows. Each fighting against all others, the strongest man is the best man. Your love one another is a stupidity. Well, replied Monsignor Binadinu, which that's his second name, which means good vision, good good way to look at the world. Without discussion, if it be a stupidity, the soul ought to shut itself up in it like the pearl in the oyster. And he shut himself up in it and he lived in it. He was was, uh, satisfied absolutely with it. And that is the power of the gospel to change the world. We should mine, as he says, for pity, not for vengeance. Well, like I said, this is a great example. And one of the features of this, I'm I'm going to quickly get off this because I need to move on to the next one, and that is he is the epitome of kindness, in my opinion. The epitome of kindness. Um, One of the great verses in the scriptures is Ephesians 4.32. Be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, for God in Christ has forgiven you. How can we bring people to reconciliation with God? Kindness. That's the gospel way. And Bishop Merrill is the classic example of that. I don't want to talk about Flannery O'Connor. I suspect some of you have read Flannery O'Connor before. She's an interesting author, to say the least. Uh, her characters are bizarre and grotesque and nightmarish. They're, I mean, it's like what you'd see in a Halloween movie, much of what she did. But she's an incredibly interesting person, in my opinion. Born in 1925 and died in 1964 in Andalusia, Georgia. Uh, just 39 years old. Uh, quite prolific. Um, she uh, was there in that small little rural town as there in the picture. Oftentimes peacocks are shown with her. In fact, the peacock is the symbol of Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, this is a collection of her short stories and it has you know, peacock feathers. She always kept peacocks and ma- many people would come to see her just to see the, the peacocks. Uh, she wrote two novels and multiple short stories collected in two different groups. And eventually, as she gets a college education at Georgia College State University and then goes up to the Writer's Workshop at the University of Iowa, perhaps one of the most significant workshops, writer's workshops in the whole country. And she is a, she's a hit, and she starts her novel called Wise Blood there, and she's recognized as an incredibly gifted writer. But she doesn't decide to stay up there. Uh, she moves back to Milledgeville. Uh, she is a very devout, serious, conscientious Roman Catholic, and that very much imbues so much of the way she looks at things. And uh, uh, she has lupus. And you can see there in that picture, she has a crutch. And she dies of lupus eventually at 39 years of age. Uh, but she was also a, a woman of the South. She knew about Southern culture. She knew about uh, the endemic pernicious racism 
that permeated so much of the Southern culture. Uh, she, she's older than me. I mean, I, I was born in 1951, and, but I, and I was born in Texas, in the central part of Texas. But I, too, was sort of raised in a lot of that, as, as you were as well, that there were things going on that were unquestioned that nowadays we find to be rather repellent. And she was raised in that. And she, as a white woman from the South, was in some ways caught up with a lot of the culture, the racist culture that she was raised in. And a, a little over a year, two, three months ago, there was an article that came out in The New Yorker by a guy named Paul Ely, E-L-I-E. And uh, the title of it was, How Racist Was Flannery O'Connor? Not whether she was, but how much. And he makes this argument that indeed she was a racist. And uh, immediately a lot of schools and so on counseled, canceled her and put her on the forbidden reading list because she was a representative of racism. Now, I've read that article. It's not all that long. You can find it online. He, he talks about some of her letters. He talks about some of her interviews. Uh, but there have been a number of people that have replied to that and saying that, indeed, this is an overstatement of some of the ambiguities that she was dealing with and that she had sort of you know, hyperboles and exaggerations that she would give on, on occasion that in that context it was understandable but taken out, you could see where that may be a racist comment. Uh, I, you know, I, I try to be honest about this. I don't think she is a racist. I don't. Uh, there are some authors that we know really well that make very conscientiously, very clearly, very directly statements that are morally repellent. And I know I'm way out on thin ice in making this client. Some of you may know the great author T.S. Eliot. There's no doubt about it. He was an anti-Semite. I mean, he, he wrote about it. He talked about it. He was indeed an anti-Semite. And what do we do with an author that uh, is not just sort of tangentially favoring these very, very objectionable opinions, but at the very heart? I think he's a problematic author. I do. T.S. Eliot is. I hate to dismiss him. I'm not going to dismiss him. I'm just going to say you have to be really careful. But I don't think she is. I really don't think she is. Uh, there have been enough people who knew her well enough. Even Alice Walker, the famous black poet, author, um, who, you know, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, who knew her, knew her work, uh, didn't think that she was a racist. And so, however, though, she spoke in ways that are very difficult for us to accept. They, I have to admit this. And the play that I want to talk about is, is such a play, and it's called Revelation. Any of you read it? Okay. It is a hard, hard little short story to read. Uh, it uses, you know, descriptions of, of black people that, you know, we, we, we don't use anymore. and They're just wrong for us to use. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to even to read those words out loud when I read them. But let me give you the context of the story. Um, Flannery Connor was always, um, like I said, you know, emphasizing the grotesque of human nature. And uh, her points are often... Acerbic, uh, pointed, uh, hard to deal with, and always convicting. And she was convicting the culture that she was raised in. This book here is an indictment of the culture that she was raised in. And the story is that uh, they're in a doctor's waiting room, and there are a number of people there waiting. And she's the main character named Ruby Turban is there. She's 47 years old. 
um, mentions her weight, 180 pounds. That's going to be significant in just a minute. And she's there with her husband named Claude. And she can't really find a seat because this boy who seems to be a lunatic won't move over. And she starts to, in her mind, you know, denigrate you know, who this little boy is. And as she finally finds a seat, she looks around and she sees this fat girl. That's what she's called, a fat, ugly girl with pimples all over her face, whose name is actually Mary Grace, 18 or 19 years of age, goes to Wellesley College. Interesting that O'Connor designates that, that she goes to Wellesley College, leaves the South, goes up to this sort of prestigious liberal arts all-woman's college and comes back. And uh, there is white trash. She calls this woman over there white trash. And there's another woman there called the stylish woman. Well, one thing leads to the next, and uh, uh, you know, a discussion you know naturally goes uh, to, and again, these things are difficult for us to discuss. Uh, but you know, the, you know, the general white attitude towards the blacks, considering the blacks to be inferior and uh, to be lazy and to manipulate and maneuver white people around all the time. And there's just these really sort of, uh, you know, odious descriptions of black people in this discussion around them. Now, Miss Turbin, though, always feels that she is above all this, that she is of a different class, not only because she and her husband owned this farm and land, they raised pigs, I'll come back to the pigs in just a minute, uh, but, you know, she's sophisticated, she's refined, she, she doesn't use coarse and vulgar language like the white trash woman does. And she is just really, really uh, condemning and, and condescending to the white trash woman. But she, in her own heart, you know, fears black people, doesn't want to have anything to do with them. But she does always think that she's doing what Jesus wants her to do. She's always going out of the way to be sort of a good Samaritan to one another. And as they were talking, this fat, ugly girl is raising her eyes, raising her face, hearing all this, and, and just scouring, glowering at Miss Turban. And there's this kind of palatable hate coming out of her face towards her. And at one point, she gets this book that she had been reading and hurls it across the room and hits Miss Turban in the head and knocks her down. She then, that is this girl, comes across the room, lights on top of her, and starts to choke her with her hands. Well, immediately they pull her off. She ends up kicking her husband, Claude, and the doctor comes in and sedates her, and they take her off. Well, when she was doing this, this girl, she was calling her a fat wart hog. That stayed with her. I'm not a fat. Yeah, from hell. That's right. From hell. A fat wart hog from hell. They're the worst kind. They're the worst kind. And that just traumatized her. What do you mean I'm from hell? A fat wart hog. What do you mean? I'm sophisticated. I'm a Christian. I do what Jesus tells me to do. What do you mean? And in her mind, she creates a hierarchy of people. Obviously, she was the highest. She and her kind. Then... There were the, uh, the, the, the crazy lunatics. They were the next. Then there were the blacks. 
But at the lowest point of that are the white trash people. Interesting that she has more disdain for white trash people, even though she has a lot of you know, suspicion and fear and loathing of black people. But it's these white people that she hates the most. And she feels that they are so far from her. They are like pigs. They live in you know, you know, mud and dirt and ground around and grud around and live a rather seedy life. They are the ones. They're the fat wart hogs from hell. Not me. This traumatizes her. She cannot get it out of her mind. So finally, uh, she, she goes home. And Claude is not feeling all that well. And uh, one of the things they do all the time is that they go and they wash off the cement floor of their, their pigsty. They're real proud of how clean their pigs are. And she is out there watering down the pigsty, you know, washing off that filth, pretending to be you know, this sophisticated, refined, Jesus-loving, upper-class person. And then she has a vision. You see that there? I, I, I was looking around for pretty interesting pictures to capture this. And she has a revelation. She has a revelation. She sees something in her mind. And what she sees, and it's not real clear there on the right, I, I couldn't find the picture I wanted to find. What she sees, though, is this suspended bridge from earth to heaven. And she sees a long stream of people going up to heaven. Now you tell me, what's the order of the people going up to heaven? White trash first, blacks next, lunatics, and then t at the end, trailing along, almost just kind of grabbing their coattails, are people like her. Heaven reverses the order of her judgment of the quality and value of people. What she failed to realize is that the gospel redeems all people that is meant for everyone, even those people whom we think are the real pigs of society. Because in the view of heaven, we may be actually the pigs. Now the gospel lesson of this, I think, is... Um, yeah, I got it written down here. Is uh, because we have accepted the fact that... Uh, because Christ became sin so that we who are sinners might be made the righteousness of God, that no one has a right then to say they are closer to God based upon their own merit and status in society. No one does. In terms of the gospel, all people stand the same by the redemptive act of Christ. The verse that I wanted to appeal to is 2 Corinthians 5, starting verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, and I kind of like the old King James translation of it, the flesh, we know no one according to the flesh. We know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them, 
and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors. And I think a way to show the work of an ambassador is to to reverse the hierarchy is to, is to show that the ordering that we typically impose upon people, you're good, you're bad. You're special, you're unspecial. We're better than you. Is wrong. And how do we do that? By showing this unbelievable compassionate care for all people. To be an ambassador of God is to be a minister of reconciliation to all people. To act in a way in which... My you know, presuppositions about people, my inclinations because of who I am, a white guy raised in Texas living in Birmingham, all these sort of things that sort of come into the background of our thinking and shape the way we feel and act towards other people, those things always have to be critiqued. They always have to be held back because that's not how the gospel looks at people. You know, he who knew no sin became sin that we... Sinners might be made righteous by God. How can I live that way? How can I embody this message of reconciliation? And I think what Flannery O'Connor here is saying, that whatever it is, it is the opposite of Ruby Turban. Now, as we think on this wonderful little story, very arresting, isn't it? Because it's easy to put ourselves in that position too, isn't it? It's easy to say, well, you know, I may not be exactly like her, but I've made those sort of judgments about people that I don't want to have anything to do with because they're so different from me. Race, class, position in society, all those sort of things that we want to do. Uh, She does have a vision. She sees something. Revelation comes to her. That in some ways, and I think Flannery O'Connor is very insightful about this, so she's indirectly telling us this. The message of reconciliation can transform the hardened heart. It really can. Her heart was hardened. And she sees the vision. And she now knows the truth. And I kind of get the impression from this. We don't know this for sure. She's different after that vision. She is. So I'll conclude with this. Let each of us have our own revelation in a way. Let each of us see the great truth of the gospel. That all people, I know sometimes this sounds kind of platitudinous, but it is true that all people are equal underneath the cross. For as you know, the great verse says, for God so loved the world, and that's everybody in it, that he gave his only begotten son. All right, this is a great depiction, I think, of the gospel. How to live in a way in which we too are ambassadors. One concluding comment, and then we'll go. Today... Any of you know what saint is honored on this day? Francis of Assisi. This is Francis of Assisi's day. Uh, Wonderful saint. Should be a model for all of us. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the great English writer, wrote, I think, one of the best biographies on, on Francis of Assisi. And at the end of it, he says this about Francis, which is the revelation that each of us should hope for. He walked the earth as the pardon of God. Can we do that? Let me pray. 
Reveal thyself to us, O Lord, that we too may see just how powerful thy love can be. That it can change a heart like Jean Valjean. It can show the truth to a person like Miss Turban. And that we too can be caught up into this great celebration of people drawn to thee. O Lord, help us to become ambassadors of Christ. And this I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.